and we're actually going to do the BC stuff. We're going to spend a slightly longer time on it, but we're going to actually make it efficient. And then in the end, they're going to work less and things will actually be faster. Welcome to the Failover Plan Podcast. I'm Shane Matthew. Now, this week marks the fourth episode of the podcast, and before we begin, I wanted to take a brief moment to thank all of you who have made our first few weeks so successful. I've received a lot of positive feedback on the episodes we've released so far, and I'm really excited to keep developing more for you to enjoy. This week, I'm asking for your help to take a moment to rate and review the podcast so we can start to understand if the material we're developing meets your needs. You can do that on our website or on iTunes and other podcast sites that you listen to the show. And if you're a first-time listener, don't forget to subscribe to the Failover Plan podcast. You can easily do so by finding us at failoverpodcast.com. And now let's start the show. Now, when I was a BC program manager, one of the things I found that really made my executive team happy was when I discovered things I like to call risk nuggets. A risk nugget is a little issue or problem that when discovered during the course of the BIA or during the building of recovery plans could be resolved with little to no effort and always made the BCM program look great to leadership. For example, at one organization I worked at, I found that there was a single laptop on a manager's desk with an access database saved on it that was critical to the entire team's work processes. That laptop wasn't on IT's radar and therefore not backed up nightly like all the other important data we depended upon. And since it wasn't on the main network, it also wasn't receiving any system updates in the five years since it was first turned on. This is a risk nugget. Or in a broader sense, this is an example of the concept of continuous improvement. For those who don't know, this discipline found within many organizations today focuses on the examination of business processes to find ways to make them more efficient and effective. The concept of continuous improvement is not a new one. Frankly, it started around the same time business continuity did in the 1980s, and there are a lot of similarities you can find in both activities. So on today's show, I'm interviewing John Hill, a seasoned consultant with over 20 years of experience in disaster recovery and business continuity. John has integrated continuous improvement concepts into his BC programs and has lots of stories about how his work has enabled him to create value by using the information he gathered during a BIA or plan development that was then used to improve the efficiency of his organization's business processes. So if you're looking for a way to demonstrate value to your leadership team, this may be one way to do just that. So welcome, John Hill, to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so John and I have known each other for a while now, and uh, you know, y- y- listeners can obviously listen and check out his LinkedIn profile, which I'll, in- I'll include uh, in the show notes. But John has a very interesting career. He's, he's uh, got quite a varied career. I'll let you check that out. But I'd like the audience to kind of get to f- get a feel for your background and, and how you got into the business continuity and IT world, because your career spans a pretty, pretty far away. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Probably to start out with uh, the best part of growing up was actually growing up in schools that were based in New Hampshire, where there's Dell and Digital Equipment Corporation and and Wang Computer Corporation. So I learned programming in junior high and 
learned a lot about technology, you know, throughout high school and then got to college. And I'm like, we did this stuff in junior high. Why are we doing this in college? So <laughs> I have a very extensive technical background and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was extremely blessed to be where I was and to learn what I did. And so that's provided me a huge advantage in going in right out of high school to being able to program. And that's where I started out was as a WordPerfect corporation where I did programming. I quickly realized wait, 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 you were word perfect. Yes. That, <laughs> that is a throwback right there. <laughs> it is. <laughs> that's one of the, that's one of the first, I, so it shows you my age. Uh, I, I actually had, well, that was one of the first uh, word processing programs I started using when we got our first computer at our house. Uh, actually, that's interesting. I actually started word perfect as a um, IT tech for the regional sales office there in New mm. England. And then they wanted to, if I wanted a job, I could move there to their headquarters in uh, Orem, Utah, which I did and actually became a programmer, but didn't like it because I didn't like being in the closet 24 seven and or equivalent to a closet and only saying hi to the receptionist as you went into work or at left work. So right. I went into <laughs> testing and then eventually back to IT again and then back into resiliency efforts to keep IT up and running and be able to do what we needed to do. Yeah. So was that like an easy transition? I mean, like, you know, it seems like you're a technically oriented person and then you're doing IT work and then, you know, business resiliency seems to be more, uh, you know, qualitative discussions and, and, and meetings, presentations. Like, was that uh, was that challenging to move to that area? It, it, it was in the way of presentations and stuff like that, because I had never really done that before, but it wasn't hard to, to capture either. The One of the interesting facts about coming from the IT side going into BCDR was the amount of what I call fluff that a lot of the IT people put in their plans. And, you know, knowing technology side, you're <laughs> like, well, that sounds that? good. Okay. I call fluff. Um, basically, if you don't know technology, it sounds really good. It sounds like, the, you know, this is a recoverable plan. But if you know technology, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. So a good example of that is one time there's a company called Veeam that, that backs up virtual servers. They can't back up physical servers. And so the recovery plan had Veeam backing up all of the physical data center servers and the virtual servers. And, you know, it sounded good. But if you know technology, you're like, that's not even possible. And so I've had <laughs> <laughs> I've had, had lots of conversations with IT people who are like, well, you don't even know what you're doing. And I'm like, well, I do. And I know that this can't be right. And, you know, I call it fluff. <laughs> Do you call it fluff to their face? I like, do. This is all fluff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. So, so you went from, um, well, I mean, obviously you still have a very extensive IT knowledge and you're working in your career at a couple of different places. I, I, I looking at your bio, I noticed that you worked in some organizations where you had to deal extensively with FFIEC regulators you know, that can be a challenge to a lot of people because they're very they're very stringent rules around continuity of operations. And, you know, what was your stance? How did you approach, you know, that part of your career? Did you did you have challenges there? Um, FFIC is definitely a lot different. And then a lot of people don't know that there's actually what's called technology service provider requirements, which are even stricter than the regular banking or credit union requirements. And so one of the companies I worked for, they actually did banking and credit union software. So they were actually subjected to the TSP, as they call it, technology service provider requirements, which are even worse. It mm. wasn't a bad transition because 
my philosophy when it comes to recovery planning is you got to do the right thing for your customer. You got to do the right thing for the company and you got to do the right thing for the employees. And if you do all those things together, pretty much all of the different federal, local and state requirements fall into place. You may have to change a few things here or there, but you've pretty much got it covered. And so transitioning mm. to that wasn't, wasn't that bad. It was actually fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what, what was your, you, you, what was your career like when it comes to resiliency? Like, were you a program leader? Tell me, tell us a little bit about your, your journey in the, the business continuity world. The business continuity world, I started by, um, in the technology side, of course. And I noticed that we started getting a few audits here and there, which wasn't a big deal. And then pretty soon two audits a year turned into like 19. And I'm like, what is going on here? But it was a, at a time when, the Fed started to realize that we need to have a better handle on this stuff. So they started increasing the requirements and how often they audited. it. And I realized real quick, we couldn't get away with a lot of the stuff that we used to get away with and that we probably shouldn't be getting away with anyway. <laughs> can you, can you share? What did you, what did you try to get away with John? <laughs> without putting you in any, uh, any federal hot water? Sure. I mean, like what do you mean at a high level? Like what, what, what was uh, going on that people you needed to fix? Um, one of the companies I work for, they had a BCDR program in place, but I quickly realized that the feds that were over it were older and they've since retired. So we don't have to worry about them, you know, revealing them, them anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they didn't understand technology and other stuff. So they would, this, the people there would give what I would call again, fluff, not just in the plan, but talk fluff. And they're like, oh, okay. It sounds like you know what you're doing. And then they'd, you know, sign off on it. Oh, Okay. Okay. And as we got younger guys coming in to replace these guys that retired, all of a sudden it was scary for the people who were there because they're like, oh, wait, it's like this guy knows what he's talking about and he knows that I'm not giving him a complete truth here. <laughs> <laughs> so was that like the impetus? Was the audits the driver for having programs like this or was it the other way around? It With most organizations, it's one of two things. One, they want to go ahead and do the audit or the examination and be compliant for it. Or the second one is, is that they actually have a, well, there's three technically, but the second one is they have a issue that pushes them or forces them into resiliency. Or the third one is they want to do the right thing from the start. How many programs do you think really fall in those categories from your perspective? Most of them are in when something happens. Yeah. In my experience in the past, for sure. Right. A lot of times they will do what they need to to pass the exam or the audit and nothing more. And it's not till an actual disaster or incident occurs that they go, oh, wait a second, we're really we're really exposed here and we need to straighten this up. Otherwise, we're going to lose money or basically the company's going to go under. You know, when you're dealing with these uh, types of situations with um, companies and, and you started to go down the road of, hey, I had a small team. It was just me and there was a lot of problems. Um, with the previous uh, p- previous regime that was working before you, this is not a start from scratch project, or was it? It it kind of ended up being a start from scratch. One of the problems we encountered was is that the plans had been all completed or originally set up twenty five plus years ago, and they really hadn't changed much at all. So all of the new requirements, all the banking changes, all that stuff wasn't incorporated into the plans or into the operations at all either. So they started 25 years. I'm mean, I, I just apologize for interrupting here. You know, I'm on a personal side quest, John, to find out who made the BIA, the first BIA. I'm really interested in finding out that. But so you're saying that 25 years, maybe worth of materials, 
that have been, you know, kind of built upon. Did that include business impact analysis? They had a lot of stuff. We just didn't know how accurate it was. And then working with the different departments, it was, they would say, oh yeah, that was us probably 10, 15 years ago, but we do a lot more now. We don't do that, but we do this. And so it was just very outdated for sure. So how does a company allow that to happen? Did they just have a program and paid for it? Obviously with the resources they employed, but just really didn't care about the outcomes? Well, it, it the interesting answer to that would be, by the time it was finished and the feds were actually looking at everything we do, I had 19 people or 18 of them reporting to myself to actually do what really needed to be done. Oh, interesting. And so they'd whittled it down to basically one person and an administrative assistant to kind of try and make it handle. And the individual at the time, it goes into what I call the peril predicament. A lot of times it's a, a phrase I've termed for organizations that redirect money from resiliency and protection efforts to, you know, making short-term profits or increasing the bottom line. And so that's really what that individual was stuck in is that they kept taking all the resources away from them. And yet they were expected to go ahead and continue to keep everything operational up and running. And so when push came to shove, I think that's why a lot of that stuff was not accurate and there weren't the real signatures on it. And they just did whatever they could to get by. And because of that peril predicament, as I call it, it's helped me to realize when I am working at different organizations, at some point you go, wait a second, I need to get out of here because they're just going to run me into a hole. And then if anything happens, it's my fault. And mm. this is something that happens to IT people, cybersecurity people, BCDR. I mean, there's a multitude of people that this can happen to. Wow. That's interesting. The peril predicament. Uh, you will heard it here first on the uh, failover plan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if that term takes off, then uh, you can trace it back here. Um, so when you're building this program um, and dealing with kind of like really older documents and people were just kind of saying, hey, we, we really don't pay attention to this, it seems kind of just do the bare minimum like how do you start where do you start there like what what do you how do you approach that that quagmire well one of the benefits that i had of starting is that these the company i worked for had a disaster occur to it and they weren't able to do credit card or debit card processes or even process checks and money for uh, roughly over a month it actually got wiped out. There was actually certain data that, that couldn't even be recovered. So there were checks that never got deposited or with, withdrawn. So they were actually in big trouble with the Fed government. And the federal, the FFIC will do uh, disciplinary agreements. That's not an uncommon thing to do, but it is pretty rare. I wouldn't say it's super rare, but it's it's rare enough out of all of them. It turns into what they call a public disciplinary agreement. Hmm. And so the company I worked for was under a public disciplinary agreement and they actually sent an email or not an email, but a letter out to all of the different customers saying that they were placed under it for not following FFIC guidelines and regulations. And then they give you a certain amount of time to go ahead and correct your actions. Otherwise they then send out another letter that says, we advise you to find a different financial provider because this Ooh. one is not following. And I don't know if that's ever happened in the history, but you know, if it does happen, it pretty much signs your death warrant as a company because your customers are fleeing and the feds can say, you don't have to pay any uh, penalties for breaking out of the contracts because they're not following the guidelines as they're required to do so. Interesting. Yeah, that would be quite the, <laughs> the stick to a wave at, uh, at companies who aren't paying attention. So 
I'm assuming then that you've had to face that where you've had to come in and, and not only have the audit help you. Was that enough for people to say, yeah, we got to jump on this and do whatever John says? That was that was certainly helpful because with that, there, the actual, there was two things that really helped out. One, the feds actually put in there that they needed to select an individual that was experienced with risk management, including BCDR, to re- lead the program back out. And so I was selected for that to go ahead and do that. And so I could come back and say, okay, we are going to have an examination in two months, and this is where we need to be. Here's where we're at. And if they didn't comply, the CEO was totally in, in our court, and he was chewing out people. We used to call him the hammer because he saw everything as a nail. So all we had to do is mention something to him and the hammer came down and people started doing what they're supposed to. So, but that's a unique circumstance. It didn't always stay that way. And after we became compliant, it became hard again because we didn't have that upper management attention and and urgent need to get everything done. Right. Right. So I, I, I know that you're a big fan of Dale Carnegie and you, you're a big fan of learning first of all, but uh, for those of you who don't know, Dale Carnegie uh, wrote a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People uh, several years back. And uh, he has courses and his his legacy has lived on, obviously, since uh, a long time back. But the basic premise is, is uh, you know, thinking through the eyes of engagement, right? So, you know, how do you apply those kind of thoughts and practices when you don't have the big stick? You know, what have you found to work with your experiences? One of the things is just kind of being, making yourself human and making them human. And that sounds simple enough, but it's much more complicated, of course. But some of the stuff that we did was, of course, Dale Carnegie teaches you to look through the eyes of the other person. And so instead of saying, we have this audit here, I would go ahead and change the language to say, your department or your system is going to be audited at this date. We would like to help you prepare for this. Mm. And then we also included some silly little things, too, that some people may not have found uh, very helpful or or just kind of fun, but other people did. So we would include um, like a rubber band saying stick in there or a piece of tape saying stick in there and stuff like that. Some some little things to make it lively as well and lighthearted because so many people get focused on their everyday stuff. Then they, they just, you know, it's hard to get them out of that. Yeah, right. And, and uh, you know, those types of those types of engagement uh, activities tend to uh, to get them to be interested, but you know, as you're exploring these these um, departments that are now kind of starting to perk up a bit and engage in your program, did you face any challenges with convincing or uh, working with? I mean, like, what were the problems you started to encounter um, in these situations? A lot of the problems were individuals being available to actually work and work on the stuff that we needed to. Most corporations that I've worked for, people are already overburdened. There's too much on their plate and they just don't have time to do what you need them to, even though it's required for compliance or for other purposes. And so they're, they do what I, I'd term another coin that I said, I'm too busy drowning to swim right now. That's a lot of the responses I got from them. If you really stopped and listened to us, I'm too busy drowning right now. I can't swim. And that was kind of frustrating because you have these people that need to be doing stuff, but they're not. And as I started looking closer to see what they did, I realized a lot of what they did, well, I shan't say a lot, a, a good portion of what they did didn't really even matter and wasn't even being looked at. Oh, and, how, well, how did you get, how did you draw those conclusions? I mean, through your, through your 
BC analysis? Uh, actually, through the BC analysis, one of the things that um, I have a lot of training in is, is process improvement, or as I like to call it, continuous improvement. And one of the things that I did is I started working with Anytime I go to a company, I usually look to see if they have a process improvement or a continuous improvement department. And I like to work with them because between BCDR, they're basically the risk division and continuous improvement, they know pretty much the entire company. But what I did find is a lot of times the continuous improvement side didn't have a very good idea of what was going on. Some of them are really good, but a lot of them didn't. And we trace that back to that these departments and these system owners were actually having to tell BC and DR, you know, their operations. And then all of a sudden here's somebody else from another department in continuous improvement asking the same questions or similar questions. Hmm. So we so you quickly, found a partner. You found a partner almost to, uh, to uh, you know, to address these, these same kind of topics together. It's absolutely. But in doing that, we often found that a lot of the stuff they were doing was just something that they'd always done. They didn't necessarily know why they were doing it. And I like to use reporting as an example. There were a lot of reports that people put time into and processed. And they were going to managers' mailboxes that had rules that automatically deleted them because they felt they were being bothered by them. They didn't want them. <laughs> and so, so here's... So, hold on a second. So... <laughs> So you're telling me that you would, you're talking about the departments, you're doing analysis of the department for planning purposes. Yes. Right. And then you would discover, like, was this being the vital records assessment where you're basically identifying documents they create and, and uh, need in the event of a, a uh, damage to their, to their part of the, the building or something like that? It was part of that and also part of the, what their requirements were. So operational requirements and some mm -hmm. of that with banking has to do with, you know, providing letters and reports to the Fed, which are obviously needed and required. Okay. But some of these other reports, I'm like, what is this and where does it go? And so we we would complete their analysis and, you know, get their plans set up. But then over time, I started to do a little more research to see where were these reports going to and who was actually looking at them. Okay. And that's when I started to find out that they weren't going. <laughs> they were being automatically deleted. <laughs> So the, the reports that they're suggesting are vitally important for their work or is it other people's work? It, it was other people's work or they were told. So basically at one point they were told, you have to produce this report and send this to this management. Well, that manager may have left and the new manager doesn't care or doesn't want that information. This is an, this is an interesting um, a problem to have. All right. So as a BC professional, I'm imagining I've done interdependency kind of discussions where I find out which departments are dependent on others and what's the work product that transfers back and forth between them. You're telling me you found situations in which the department that uh, is passing out this work product is sending it and saying that it's very vital and is sending it on to another team that's saying like, we don't even use that. <laughs> and they haven't had this conversation. Absolutely. If, at the risk of copyright violations, you know, I call it a Homer Simpson issue where you, you look back on it and you're like, don't, that's absurd, <laughs> but nobody ever takes the time because they're so busy to talk to each other. Wow. Well, so how do you, how do you address that? Do you just like, you know, pull your hat down low over your eyes and keep walking? I mean, like, <laughs> what do you do when you discover that sort of stuff? Well, at first you have to go ahead and go through their processes and know what it is. And that can be challenging with the bigger organization because there's multiple people. So we had to have lots of meetings to talk about what similar departments did and what processes they were sending it to and who, and then bring those people in. So we actually could get everybody that had the knowledge in the same room to go ahead and discover these things. 
But the other process, once we figured it out, we actually started to have to verify it because we're like, okay, is some is this report going anywhere else? Is it automatically forward somewhere else? So we'd actually start talking to these people that were supposed to receive it and say, what do you do with this? And some said, yeah, we delete it. Some said they forward it. And sometimes we'd find, I remember a case where we had four different departments that that report was forwarded to, and it wasn't forwarded directly to them. Each department forwarded it off to the next one because the guy had moved to a different department. And and at the very end, they're like, yeah, we don't know what this is. This information doesn't make any sense to us. But, yeah, we get it every month. It fills up, you know, so we just send it into junk. I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's, it, to me, it's hilarious. The fact that, he, that you're going to find as you're planning, just as random persons come in and, hey, I got to make a plan. And you discover that they are, people are doing work that is ultimately just being trashed, right? Or, or, you know, just not really necessary, so inefficient. So, you know, what do you, yeah, anyway, tell me more about, like, how you address that. Like, did you just let it go and move on, or do you do you approach it in a different way? Because I think there's some tremendous value if you can find these kind of inefficiency nuggets as you're doing your job. Well, one of the things that you do is you use it to actually help out the individuals that you need to have work done. So in the, this case, this department was keying in this data and combining it with some other stuff to send out a report that nobody read. They got forwarded all around, but nobody read it. And so when they complained they didn't have time, we started going back through and we said, okay, you realize this report here? And they're like, yeah, we have to do that. And I'm like, well, how long does that take you? And we figure that out. And then I'd say, okay, what if I told you you didn't have to do that anymore? <laughs> the magic man is coming to town. <laughs> now, surprisingly enough, some of those people were really mad. I mean, they weren't necessarily too mad at myself. I mean, in some ways they were, but they were mad because they looked back and they're like, one girl said, I've worked here nine years and I've wasted my time doing that report for the last nine years. Oh, my goodness. Oh, but, my God. <laughs> but you can go to them and then say, OK, now you can do these things and help us out with this stuff. Wow. So that you know, you're freeing up time for people. You're incre- you're improving the efficiencies of certain departments, right? So, does that become a is that a full time thing for you, or is that just more of a every now and then that popped up? It it actually became I wouldn't call it full time, but it came actually pretty essential to what we did. We started to realize that we could actually make a lot of changes within the organization, streamline it, and one of the problems we had is that executive management wanted to cut costs. So they wanted to start cutting down on the number of people that were in our department. So kind of this peril predicament happening again, where they're cutting the resources Yeah. and they actually got rid of the process improvement department entirely. And so I proposed to them that we could actually go through and kind of kill two birds with one stone. We're actually going to do the BC stuff. We're going to spend a slightly longer time on it, but we're going to actually make it efficient. And then in the end, they're going to work less and things will actually be faster. Interesting. So walk me through an example of something like this. I mean, like help, help our uh, listeners understand like how this, how did this work? You obviously are taking on responsibilities that traditionally business continuity doesn't uh, absorb. And maybe this is, maybe this is a good thing um, for the industry to know and and try to uh, adopt, but walk me through something like this. Sure. I like to think of it as a future myself, but I'm biased. So <laughs> You're a futurist. <laughs> a good example would be um, the banking credit union software that I, I company that I work for. They actually acquired a credit union software company. And these two companies were essentially one, but operated independently. 
And as we were going through the, the BC side of it, we were looking at these different programmers and I was in a meeting and one of my employees said, hey, I've got somebody on the credit union that has almost the exact same job description. And so we started looking at it, you know, what their recovery plans were and looking at their different vendors. And I'm like, almost 90% of these vendors are the same exact vendors. See, there's the same people that they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And to make a long story short, we figured out that the credit union was writing software to interface with all the different credit card and debit card processors. And the bank was doing exactly the same thing on the other side. So they were basically doing duplicate work independently of each other. So, so, so how does that uh, translate into, you know, kudos for John? I mean, did you raise the flag there? Did it stop? Like, what was the outcome? Well, I went ahead and went because we were looking for ways to improve efficiencies within the company so they could make more money. And I said, look, we've got people here that are doing the same exact thing. The only difference is at the very end, when that data gets finally processed, it goes into the credit union system, which is unique. And the other side goes into the banking system, which is unique. So 98% of this is the same. Only 2% of the very end is different. And so we actually, I got permission to work with the different managers and we actually took the two programming groups and had a meeting together. We flew them in together and we figured out real quick who liked doing this kind of programming and who was just kind of there doing it because they had to. And so we actually created a group. They all merged the programs together to one program, but they actually had a group of core programmers that were actually going to stay with it. And then the other programmers were freed up to actually write enhancements and improve the software that the rest of the the interfaces and the rest of the customers would go ahead and use as well. I mean, so John, you're, 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 I know you and you're very calm in your explanation here, but you are literally (laughs) describing like what I would imagine is most business continuity managers dreams, like, you know, being able to justify their, their, their activity for one, but then finding an amazing efficiency improvement and, I mean, you, you glossed over a little bit because it seems like obviously with time progressed, things happen, meaning, you know, they decided all of a sudden after you bring these people in the room that we're all going to work together and, and, and create a much more effective and efficient work environment. Did it flow like that? Were you actively involved or you just kind of set up the stage? I was actively involved as in getting the people together and kind of facilitating, pushing forward with it. There was some resistance from the programmers and some of the managers too, because a lot of them were afraid about their jobs. But one of the things I did is I went to executives and I said, we have all this workload of enhancement requests and all these things that need to be improved. Can we say, you know, if we do this, that these guys can be reassigned to this and they won't have to worry about their job. And the answer was yes. So that really helped facilitate that. Amazing. One of the other thing that was really kind of surprising, which I call it a bonus, is that the credit union side was using different third-party providers, which charge a certain percentage of the transaction amount because they didn't have all the interfaces. And the banking side was doing the same thing. And if you actually combine both of those, you realized that the banking side had a bunch of interfaces for third parties that the credit union side didn't and vice versa. The credit union had stuff. So when we actually combine these things, I looked it up before the call, we were actually saving 21 or $27.1 million a year in processing fees by combining these two things and using the interfaces that were already existing. Wow. Okay. So that's a, a great example of how you've kind of adopted business process analysis and and you you use the information you glean to improve efficiencies i mean like how would you what would you recommend to business continuity managers who are kind of saying okay how do i start with that like is there a is there a secret formula or or methodology you use to to find these kind of things 
the easiest way to start is to help get the people that are actually doing the BC and the DR plans and processes and BIAs to actually look for commonalities and question, you know, where is this going? Why are they doing this process? Just back like to the reports. Why is this, where's this report going and who's reading it and why is it useful? Because that's, when you start to look at that, there's a lot of things that a certain department has always done that way, or a system has always run processing through this other system, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best way to do it now. So do you have to get training on this? Did you train your team to do this sort of stuff? How did you approach getting everybody to be in the same page to look for these these, uh, improvements? One of the things I did is I actually did what's called the Deming Red Bead experiment with the team, and it was a training that helped show them that there's a lot of things that are just in place that you have to go ahead and overcome and, and make it so that people can improve and do the right thing and not be restricted. I kind of call it a robot to free thinkers. So a lot of employees come into work and they're, they're basically robots. They do the same thing over and over again, and they don't know why they do it. It's kind of like that old story or the old song about the kids, you know, I'm a button pusher. I just push that button every day at the factory. Uh-huh. I don't know why it does that or what it does, but I just know I need to push that. That you train your team to identify and realize that the processes we are trying to recover, oftentimes many people haven't looked at the processes to really even determine if it's an efficient and effective process in a long time. There's a chance. So you're almost an effective, you know, just see, look, at the end of the day, a lot of us as business company professionals just accept that when we're told this is the process that I need to recover, that we are just focused, laser sharp focus on let's make sure that process gets recovered, right? We don't incorporate a lot of thought sometimes. And maybe, maybe people are, but I know in my career, I would not spend a lot of time trying to say, well, while I'm here <laughs> under the hood, let me see if I can figure out a way to improve that process or even assess whether do we need to recover this process. Is that safe to say is like kind of the approach you would take? Absolutely. I call it step one. Step one is probably what most continuity people are doing right now. We identify what they tell us are the equivalent to their critical processes. We prepare for them. We make sure that all the dependencies are there and we ensure that they can recover. And that's the first step. The second step after you've done that is to actually start putting pieces together from all the different departments and saying, what is actually going on here in the background and why is it needed? And this is especially happens on companies that grow really fast because there are certain ways they did it when they were small. And then as they grew, they continue to try and do that same thing because people don't like the change. And then all of a sudden you have all these processes that are pretty much outdated or being run in a very inefficient way. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking back to a couple of my experiences that are just exactly what you described. It's, you know, if you're in a startup environment, which is a really big takeaway, I think, from this conversation. Uh, that you shouldn't overlook is that the, the, the organization itself can have a lot of impact on how you solve the business continuity problem. You know, if yeah. they're startup, like you're describing the processes or even long time companies have this problem sometimes where they just have a process that's been around for a long time and we always did it that way. Right. One of the things that I coined this as in our organization was BCDRCI for business continuity, disaster recovery, continuous improvement. And so we kind of did the BCDR processes first. And then I said, we go back and do what's the CI portion of that, where we actually start to look more in depth of what's going on here. Why is it being done and doesn't need to happen anymore? The one thing about step two, which is that BCDRCI is that 
before as a BCDR, you just look at the critical processes. But in the CI, continuous improvement, you actually look at their everyday processes. And one of the things I found by looking at their everyday processes, we identified a whole lot more critical processes that people didn't think were critical, even though they really were, and that people would be screaming if they weren't getting them. And so it helped us to actually spend a little more time learning all their day-to-day operations. But we also said, hey, why isn't this particular operation important? And why isn't that a critical one who, you know, it looks like these departments can't operate unless you produce this particular um, key, this data in and actually transfers over to them so they can actually process it. So we actually started to identify what I call true dependencies and true critical processes within the organization. <laughs> Do you, you certify them as true versus just like, hey, this is some random critical process. Now we've got a true one. That's interesting. So you know, when you're coming up with this uh, strategy, you know, for those organiz- those people in the organizations that are listening to us uh, talk, continuous improvement may be a separate organization, right? So option A is just to partner with them. Yes. Uh, but option B is the suggestion of incorporating and becoming the full-scale continuous improvement. Do you need different types of people to join a team like that? Do you have different different skill sets or certifications? We did. um, I did employ some people that were Six Sigma certified. I think a lot of the different organizations that do uh, continuous improvement have some good points. I go back to the 80-20% rule. If your organization hasn't done it, you can spend 20% of your effort and get 80% results. But once you're already getting the 80% results, you're going to have to spend that 80% to get the rest of the 20%. So in in short, basically, it means you can actually have some massive improvements and and do some amazing things without having to be that skilled in the process improvement side. Excellent. Interesting. You know, on the you talked earlier about how you you kind of blended BCDR and CI, right, which is very innovative thinking, I think. How did that impact the 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 timelines? And the the amount of time people spent with you did that did that give you any uh, challenges to getting their engagement over a longer period of of work together? Absolutely, because <laughs> you have to do. <laughs> Before we're saying we're going to spend you know two days with them or a week with them, and now we're going to have to spend two weeks with them, you know, to go through all of their daily processes as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest hurdle a lot of people would say when they're hearing this is like, yeah, it's going to take a long time to do all that. So one of the things that we did is we had a a department that we the, I knew the manager pretty well and she was very friendly towards me and I told her about my idea and I said it appears and it actually happened to be the reporting where they did a lot of reporting stuff I said it appears a lot of the stuff of what you're doing and I hope I'm wrong but it appears a lot of what you're doing is not really being looked at at all and she looked at me and said I I've thought that for many years now because she'd been in that position for over 20 years wow And so we actually partnered with her because she would give us the time. And we actually went through and started looking at all these reports and the other things that her department did. And then we used that one as the poster child to say, hey, look, we saved these guys, you know, 23% of their time because they were doing stuff that was inefficient and not nobody was looking at. And so we could then go to other managers and say, you guys are overloaded. How would you like to, you know, invest? You got to say invest two weeks with us to go through this stuff and see if we can go ahead and make your operations more efficient, get rid of the the waste and the clutter and all the things that you don't need to be doing. 
No, that's a good way to put it. Investment of your time in this. I think that would benefit a lot of us, even just if you're just responsible for planning only, is to, to frame it up in a different way like that. One of the other things that I noticed, too, is that usually when you're doing BCDR, you're working with the managers or the management of that division. And there's a term that I also came up with called trenches gap. And it's basically... I was watching um, Black Adder, which is a BBC show, and it's got Rowan Atkinson in it. But it's it's funny if you like British humor because it's all about how they're doing stuff in the trenches, what the management or the generals are being reported in their their you know fancy buildings that are not on the front, how they actually have to deal with it, and then how they actually get it done and what they actually report back. And so trenches gap is an example of what management really thinks is happening and how it's being done versus those people that are in the trenches that do it every day and what they actually do to get the job done. And so what we've realized, too, is that management would say, here's our critical processes. Here's how we do it. But when we actually brought the people in that did it every day during that two week investment and actually took print screens of what they did with the different systems, how they did it and actually put it up on a board, we realized that management had some idea what was going on, but a lot of it wasn't what they knew was going on. And there were other programs and other different systems that were being used and file systems and other things that were not being reported that management had no idea that we weren't protecting. We weren't ensuring that was being available in the recovery uh, site and all kinds of stuff. So it also resolved what I call the trenches gap to see what was really going on. Wow, you got some great terminology. I think we need to write this stuff down and define it in the uh, BCP glossaries that are out there. <laughs> For those people who are a little still skeptical of of the idea of merging business continuity DR with continuous improvement, was there any other examples that come to mind about um, how you were able to discover some? you know, inefficiencies or things that really help the company go, go forward that it wouldn't have done. So if you had not blended the two, um, I've got several, (laughs) how much time do you have? Give us your juiciest one. We have time. We want to make sure we get some good ones in there. Probably the most entertaining one has to do with a particular building in Florida that was called the sales palace. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. <laughs> you've, you've selected the right one already, I can tell. <laughs> so I first heard about the sales palace from accounting. And accounting was telling me that um, it was there. It was like $13,000 and something cents a month for rent for this place. And it had marble floors, you know, marble counters, this massive conference rooms with all this technology. They had on-site catering to provide food. And um, they just said, you know, this is outrageous. We have to pay this all the time. But the sales guys tell us this is essential to their closing process. And so we just pay it. It's, you know, part of the cost of doing business. And so a little bit later, we were doing the business continuity with the executives. And and um, I, I thought I'd ask the CEO, you know, and I didn't want to bring up a sore spot, but I wanted to see if he was aware of it. And I said, have you heard of the sales palace? And he dumped his hand down on the desk and he goes, oh, I've heard of it because we can't do anything about it. It's just, you know, part of the best cost of doing business. The sales guys have to have it. They refuse to let go of it. And so I was like, OK, that's fine. And so we finished that other stuff. But a little bit later, one of the employees I had was down there with the salespeople. And they when I was talking to her on a call that evening, she goes, you know, they laugh about corporate. And I said, well, what do they laugh about? And she said, well, they talk about how corporate's so out of touch that they have the stupid sales palace that they never use, but that corporate won't let them get rid of oh and that they God. pay all this money for. And so 
I was like, well, so we had a conference call with him and I talked to the sales guys and I said, so you really don't use it? And he goes, no, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was a manager that was over sales and he insisted on having it. And he said he left the company about 11 years ago and we pretty much have it ever since because <laughs> corporate won't let us get rid of it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So what did you do? <laughs> well, being kind of the uh, the person I am, I'm kind of honorary. So I said, you know what? I think I could talk to corporate and help them understand that, you know, that you guys don't need this and we don't need to waste this money. And they're like, that'd be great. And so then I went to corporate and I said, uh, you know, I talked to the sales guys and I think I have an understanding with them that they don't need to use that anymore. And they're like, what? That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> It was millions of dollars of rent that they spent in the last two years, and neither one of them were using it, and they both thought the other one wanted to. But it's that Homer Simpson dope. You know, you just see it, and you're like, wow, nobody else has the knowledge in the company except for BCDR and us to know that these things are here and in place and what the other each side thinks. So, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me that these types of activities is one mechanism people could use to build you know, really good engagement and brand value, especially amongst executives. Would would you say that that helped you, these wins? Absolutely. That it, there's two things. One thing that you probably have noticed as well if you're in BCDR is that usually if you're in management over BCDR, the CEO calls you a lot when it comes to what's going on in the organization. And most CEOs are fairly knowledgeable about it is, but they don't know the, the ground details. And BCDR knows what, you know, who does over what, how they do it, you know, what processes were. So I used was used to getting calls, you know, a couple times a week from the CEO asking me just off the wall questions that meant something to him, what he was working with. But, but I got plenty of calls from him and it, it was, it was interesting because you, you got to kind of be on a first name basis with them. And then when I started going to him and saying, here's what we did and doing this reporting to show what we were doing and why we were spending extra time and why we had extra people with us and how much it actually saved, you, you got attention. As soon as I actually said, I see something I don't think is quite right, he would want to know exactly what it was, but it wasn't like you had to keep asking him. You know, do you have a free moment? He's like, what? What's going on? Where, where do you see something? And <laughs> you get instant attention because this is the guy that's saving money. This is the guy that knows things that nobody else knows. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that that, that is a draw to uh, the financial uh, interest of the companies if you can find those inefficiencies. Wow. Well, I mean, listen, this has been a very exciting conversation. I mean, the the bottom line is the takeaway for me and I think for our listeners is that we, we're always talking about building uh, brand value and having our executives really excited to see us. It sounds like you found a way for you to develop that sort of rapport and interest from your executive team. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on the Failover Plan podcast. You can find out more about John through his LinkedIn page, which I've included in the show notes. I've also left a link with a good overview of Dr. Deming's red bead experiment, which John mentioned in the interview. Make sure to visit our website, failoverpodcast.com, or find us on iTunes and other podcast sites. Leave us a review this week so we keep getting better at this. Thanks again for listening, and remember, why learn how to do something on your own? And there's got to be someone else who may have already learned this the hard way. <laughs>